So good afternoon. I'm Kirk Carnitz, chair of the Chapters Program Committee, along with uh, Rob Weatherald and Jonathan Zeitler. And in, by, in behalf of all three of us, we want to thank you for uh, uh, joining us here today. Um, before we jump into things, I want to point out that we're live streaming the event again today, so we're really excited about that. And uh, we hope as we move into the future, we'll be able to live stream all the events and capture them, uh, not only for record, but then for also um, people who can't make it in um, and to really um, broaden our, our reach. So today, um, we have a really interesting panel, a special panel, I think, in terms of the topic being so relevant and, um, and important in terms of, I think, what we're all facing in, in the workplace. And it's been really exciting to work with this panel in, in curating it and developing the topic. And I hope you find it as exciting as um, the Programs Committee has in, in putting it all, all together. So today, our, our moderator is going to be Christine Dancero. Christine is a research knowledge manager for Perkins and & Will and is a strategic marketer with a keen understanding of industry trends, consumer insights, and customer needs. With over 15 years of diverse communication, marketing, knowledge management, and public relations experience, Christine oversees all research, data capture, reporting, and strategic application of client and industry knowledge for the evolving workplace design practice at Perkins & Will. Wow. Our panelists um, today, first of all, is Dijana Chappelle, who's a Senior Managing Director of Workplace Strategy for Seville Studley. Dijana integrates a qualitative and quantitative focus on workplace wellness, connectivity, engagement, and effectiveness by leveraging workplace assessment tools and analytics to help clients enhance business performance to achieve results, including increased employee attraction and retention, improved space efficiencies, and enhanced employee experience and productivity. Josh Golden is an entrepreneur and founder at Table XI, a 16-year-old digital strategy, user experience design, and custom software development company known throughout the industry for its unique approach to workplace culture and driving extraordinary retention numbers through engagement and experiential applications. Josh's clients include Tyson, Discover, Tronk, ShopRunners, and many other exciting and progressive companies. And then finally, Adam Stoltz, who is the Managing Director of Workplace Experience and Strategy at Transwestern, is a National Director of Consulting Services. Adam supports owners, occupiers, and investors using tangible data to help them make better informed, more confident, and reliable real estate decisions, including how space is provided, occupied, and managed. So today's topic is how to hang on to top talent and how an emphasis on continuous onboarding using technology in the workplace environment can strengthen employee engagement and help uh, retain the talent that you have. So please join me today in welcoming our panel. Okay, I'm gonna kick it off. Just wanna make sure this thing, okay, it is working, all right. So this topic um, came about from my attendance at South by Southwest. Um, which is a, an interactive conference happening every spring in Austin. There were a couple of themes that kept coming up, um, blockchain, de design for diversity and inclusion, and then onboarding, uh, particularly as it pertained to millennials and Gen Z. Uh, this is just such a hot topic right now that it was just over and over. And as it relates to the generations, there are a couple of key statistics. I'm not gonna show them here, but listen carefully, because these are pretty compelling numbers. 71% of millennials are actively seeking or open to a new job. And bear in mind, this was published probably a year ago, and now we have a really, really hot job market, so this is probably an even higher number. 
60% of that group plan to stay with their employee for less than three years. So loyalty looks really different to these younger generations. And of course, millennials aren't really that young anymore. I'm technically one and I'm 37. Um, but Gen Z, loyalty might be one to two years. Um, and then lastly, millennial employee turnover uh, costs companies over $30 billion in the US. So no small potatoes there. Um, so you add in the, the robust job market and you, this topic has never been more important. So onboarding is about creating an exceptional experience from day one, but often that experience stops at day one. So you have your training session, you might have some paperwork to fill out, you have lunch with your manager, and then it kind of ends there. So today we're gonna talk about how we can extend that onboarding experience so that people stay longer. 86% of new hires decide if they will stay at a company long-term within the first six months. And yet, 35% of companies spend $0 on onboarding. 60% of companies do not set any milestones or concrete goals for new hires to attain. And 25% of companies do not include any form of training in their onboarding. So this is a huge gap here. There's a lot of opportunity. And again, as I mentioned, as the job market gets more and more hot, um, it's even more important to focus on keeping people. But why are we talking about this at Cornet, it being a real estate organization? <laughs> workplace trends are workforce trends. A workplace without people is just a box. Um, so we want to understand how people can best work. How can they get the most out of their environment and what's going to keep them there? And so onboarding is key to that whole process. So now I want to hear from these smart people at my left here. So onboarding is often treated as an administrative checklist. It's a set of tasks to be completed in the first week. And this is usually causing a rapid influx of information. So you're learning everyone's names, you're trying to learn your way around the building, you're trying to understand maybe the, the politics of the organization, all your passwords, HR information, there's a lot. How can companies take a longer term view? How can they extend it beyond a week, 30, 30 days, 60 days, 90 days? Um, to be more effective. And specifically, if you have examples, either from your own experience or from clients of yours, I would love to hear. Yeah, I would like to start. I'll start. So I think it starts at the top, right, to determine how much you want to invest in your onboarding program. Um, and there's companies that do it really well and obviously companies that don't do it so well and have um, some to learn. So I'll talk about the ones that I feel are doing it well. So one uh, is actually Zappos obviously acquired by Amazon, but they have a program called The Offer. And what they do is that if you don't like the job after a month or six months, they'll give you up to a month's severance or a month's pay to leave. So they're essentially paying you to leave. And their strategy for that is to say that if you don't like it, leave. It's going to be better for the customers. It's going to be better for your coworkers and for the company. And everyone's going to be essentially better off without it, without you being there if you don't want to be there. So it's a really interesting play on kind of changing the psychology around it to say, um, if you don't want to be here, it's your choice. We'll actually pay you to leave and find another job. Amazon took that on when they acquired Zappos and they said, you know, that's actually a really good idea. They call it paid to quit. And so they'll actually give you, I think, and you can hear me, right? Everyone? Okay. They'll, they'll give you up to, I believe it's 2000 in the first year. If you stay another year, they'll give you $3,000. They'll give you $1,000 every year until it reaches $5,000. And then after that, you get nothing. Hopefully, you'll stay. But again, if you leave after five years, they'll give you $5,000. I'm sorry, they'll give you $5,000 after three years if you leave. 
Um, and again, for the same reason, they want people there who want to be there. And so they'll actually fund you to find a job if it's not the right culture for you. So really two great examples of companies that are doing the right thing. Um, and then just one last thing is one example that I had. My first job out of college was for a tech company. Um, and they invested in us, brought people from all around the country, uh, new graduates, into a year-long program. And they invested in us for a year. We had no client responsibility. We really had no um, responsibilities outside of learning the culture, learning the technology, learning the sales culture, learning, uh, getting to know our colleagues. And essentially, after that program, we're all dispersed around the US. And now you have a network of people who have similar experiences. You're more invested in the company. Um, and then again, you, you, I think half of us who took, who took that job are still there, which says a lot. And I'm, I'm about 36, so it's the same thing. Uh, many of my colleagues through that program are still working there, which is a lot to say for millennials, even the older millennials. Um, so, yeah. I think there's, there's a, a, a couple of other components relative to um, extending that onboarding, that sense of onboarding or, or connection to the organization that are particularly interesting. And we see this with a lot of the smaller, maybe to, to mid-sized or mid-stage companies that are really starting to grow or scale and think about how they can take what's otherwise a pretty centralized responsibility, typically within an HR function, and now distribute that responsibility to other parts of the organization. So if HR is particularly good at bringing people in the door and getting them settled in the first weeks or month or couple of months, how can they then share that responsibility with others across the organization so that it doesn't continually fall on their shoulders to make sure that people stay engaged? And related to that is a question around whether or not that responsibility also needs to marry with seniority. It, just because someone is the head of a department doesn't necessarily mean that they are the best person to ensure that people on the team are continually being checked in with or that those who are in HR are the ones that are getting the feedback they need to make sure people remain engaged. So I think thinking about those two things, about distributing that responsibility and reconsidering whether or not it has to always be the most senior person on the team mm -hmm. uh, will go a long way. Yeah, makes sense. Now, Josh, you founded your company. You're a serial entrepreneur. You founded your company when you were 22, 16 years ago, if I have my math correctly. And I'm sure you've learned a lot in that process. What have you learned both from your own experience and from working with your clients about onboarding? I think um, one of the things I've struggled with, especially being an entrepreneur, where you're building organizations from the ground up, is that, you know, Everybody has a bunch of advice and opinions for you, and uh, it's awfully challenging to take and figure out which of those advice and opinions you should actually, you should act on and you can actually act on. And I think one of the challenges in the, you know, my business, or at least this business, uh, looks a lot like a tech company to the outside, but we make money like a professional services firm, which means that we're very constrained on a dollars of revenue per headcount basis. When you talk about Google, they make something like 1.2, 1.5 million dollars of revenue per employee, which allows them to do all sorts of stuff that a company like mine that makes 250, 300,000 dollars an employee simply can never dream of doing. And so what I've had to learn over the years is, number one, I had to learn how important this is, because when you're an entrepreneur, you're like, oh, I care, everybody else is going to care. Turns out that's not true. Uh, then nobody will ever care as much as you do. And if you ever find someone who cares as much or more than you do, you should let them take over the business. 
which is what I actually did with TableXide, is now a professional CEO who runs it, is, who actually cares more than I, I did at the time. Um, and, uh, but it's, you've got to find ways to, to do that. And a, a 10 or a 12 person organization is different than a five person organization, is different than a 40 person organization, and it, and it goes up fr from there. And, and so I think this is really important to focus on, like what is the actual goal? We state the goal, uh, and, it, and it's a series of events. It's not just a, a moment in time. Uh, it's what does is, what is your interviewing process look like? How do you source candidates? Who's going into the top of the funnel? That impacts how you're going to do this. Then, uh, then what is the, the process of, of actually, you're trading time for time. And we were just talking to the panelists before. Um, I read an article in Wall Street Journal, I think, about people ghosting job interviews. It's happening left and right. People have a scheduled job interview, just don't show up. Because right now, employees have all of the cards in the American labor market. Um, and it used to be that employers just wouldn't respond when you sent the resume. Now it's employees don't respond when they've set up a, a, an interview. So throughout every single aspect of this, you need to be intentional. And it's not, it doesn't have to mean you have to lavish huge dollars on it or pay people to quit or do things. But if you're intentional, if you take the time to make someone feel like a hero after their first day, make someone feel wanted, really take the time. And it doesn't have to be big, heavy dollar, heavy time investments. You can leverage peers, as you mentioned. So it doesn't have to be the senior, the per, senior person on the team is always the one with the least bandwidth. So yeah. find other people who can support the process of making someone feel like they're achieving and define these gates and, and, and measure them as best you can and, uh, and, and get people um, into the organization so that they, you know, they feel like they're really in the right place. But I think if I can yeah, add sure. one thing to that, that, and you've mentioned here, right, don't just start, it's not just about onboarding, right? Because if you don't have your, what's called pre-boarding, right? If you don't have that interview, that search and selection process buttoned up, and I, I would add to that, offboarding as well, right? There are a lot of, particularly in management consultancies today, a lot of organizations are actually focused around the measurement of boomerang labor, mm -hmm. of people who had such an experience within the organization, including in their offboarding, that they went elsewhere and then came back mm -hmm. in some you know, period of time, in, that, in sort of that prime two to three years where you can go learn a skill elsewhere, develop, and then return and apply that skill for the good of the organization. And so it, it, you know, we're, we're gonna talk a little bit more, we're gonna mm -hmm. talk a lot about, about this idea of onboarding, mm -hmm. but I think, like a lot of things, right, the pre and then the post are just as important. Right, I mean, this is, we're talking about a continual process, so I hadn't really thought about it up till the, the very last day, but that makes a lot of sense. <laughs> you know? And just to add to the offboarding conversation is, McKinsey does a really great job at doing that. They actually have an alumni network for those who used to work for McKinsey because they know that a lot of them will become future clients, mm. or, or to your point, may come back and become future leaders. And so they want to provide an opportunity for those who used to work there. It's kind of a club, right? It's like you've been in McKinsey, you've been there in the trenches, and you're elsewhere, but you still want to be connected to those that you worked with. And most of them, I believe, McKinsey has, I think it was maybe 20% become like future CEOs for other companies. And so um, I may have that stat wrong, but it's somewhere pretty large, pretty substantial, where, again, they want to invest in having a way for their people to get together on a quarterly basis, even though they're no longer employees of McKinsey. I find that really powerful. And then an example of pre-boarding, to your point also, Adam, that I think is great. Um, so I worked with a company that they were hiring 500 new employees to a new site in a new market. So they were unfamiliar with the market, really unfamiliar with you know, what kind of, kind of talent they had there. And so they wanted our help 
to establish um, a pre-boarding kind of um, infographic um, marketing type of, um, I guess, program for people so they can not only understand who the corporation was and know what kind of company they were going to potentially work for, but know what it would be like to work there as well. Because a lot of times in the first six months, people leave because they maybe felt maybe blindsided that, hey, I didn't, I didn't expect it to be like this, or I thought it was going to be this and it was something different. And so if you do in your pre-boarding program, if you're really clear about what it's like to work there, what you'll get, what kind of perks you'll get, and you meet people who also work there, before you even sign on a contract, it absolutely enables um, you to have a better idea of what it would be like, and it keeps you engaged while you're there. Great. I think thinking of, like, the if you think about a, a transactional workforce where people are going to come and go to jobs more frequently, and then you try to employ, employ the gold watch 5, 10, 20, 25 years of tenure models of, of your uh, to that workforce, you just have a recipe for structural problems. Uh, there's a wonderful book that I would highly recommend uh, called The Alliance by Reid Hoffman, who's the founder of LinkedIn. And they talk about the way they do talent operations at LinkedIn, which is deeply, interestingly enough, informed by the way the United States military does it. In fact, they even use the idea and the phrase, a tour of duty. The idea of each, for the vast, there are some employees and some roles that you think of as being part of the furniture. They're gonna be there forever. That's your expectation. Um, but the vast majority of employees in an organization are on what they call a transformational tour of duty. It is 18 months long. The first three months is sort of getting up to speed in the role. There's 12 months of actually doing the role, and there's three months of offboarding from the role and figuring out what's next. And so if, if you think about this, it's a long enough time to get some real things done for the business, but in exchange, the business pays you a salary, but also says, these are the skills you're gonna learn, or this is what you're gonna acquire along the way. And then each time, the, the expectation, we keep going back to this sort of 18-month prenuptial agreement between employer and employee, and, and, and evolving the relationship. And if you can imagine actually doing that in your marriage, it might actually make your marriage a lot better too. Um, but um, we've, we've, we've employed many of these um, uh, approaches to, uh, you know, we haven't gone full all in on the Alliance, but the book is literally a blueprint on how to do that. And it takes a leap of faith, but all you're actually doing is acknowledging the facts as they are, and then in choosing to engage with them and act on them, as opposed to pretending something's happening that's not actually happening. And it's a really great, great, great read. Or complaining about it, which is what a lot of, you know, more old school approaches, oh, you know, kids today aren't loyal, but I think kind of reframing, um, the conversation and thinking about it as, you know, maybe it's mobility within the company, for example, um, makes a lot more sense. So we talked about pre-boarding. What about pre-pre? What about the hiring process? So we have a more mobile workforce now, so we can hire from whatever. We don't have to pick from the Chicago pool. We might be able to pick from another city. So what are some other um, trends in hiring and how does that kind of dovetail with onboarding? I'll tell you, um, so in, in tech, and again, one of my companies looks a lot like a tech company, really isn't one. Um, there's been a tremendous focus, and I think now broadening into other industries on diversity and inclusion. And so a lot of people are like, we need a more diverse workforce. And then they're like, how do we do that? Oh, it's really, really hard. And the problem is you can invest all you want in trying to bring people of different backgrounds and viewpoints in, but if you don't have a work environment that's inclusive, um, 
you've got a really huge problem. And so at TableXI, we hired someone to come in and because look, you know, there's a lot of people, we're in engineering consultancy, there's a lot of people that look like me that work at TableXI. Mm -hmm. And um, and we we're like, what's what can we do? And and the answer was we could try to tackle diversity, or we could try to tackle inclusion, or we could try to do the whole thing. And what we actually ended up deciding to do was it's hard, diversity takes time because people have to leave and go and to, to, you know, natural churn. That's, it's just a, it inherently a process that's gonna take years. But you can start building a more inclusive workforce and a more inclusive workplace tomorrow. Mm -hmm. it, you can do that right, and you can make major gains. And then when you go out and you start trying to recruit candidates from pools of talent that you haven't previously hired from, they come and they show up in that first six months and they're like, Wow, this is huge. For example, we have one candidate at TableXI, one employee, who is uh, gender agnostic, doesn't choose to uh, accept a normal definition of gender. As part of our onboarding form is the, in this inclusion uh, initiative, we simply ask someone what pronouns they would like to have used. And this, this person is, is gonna stay at TableXI for a really long time because of that. Because we acknowledge, in this in, in pure inclusion, and then we get the candidate, the candidate feels at home, and we go from there. And that's a simple tactical thing you could go back and fix tomorrow. Mm -hmm. Just to add to the diversity conversation, I think uh, Deloitte did a millennial study this past year, and they actually found that there's obviously the diversity in the traditional sense, right? But then I think with a lot of the millennials who did the study were actually asking for more of educational diversity. So those with a background in maybe art history, working at a tech company, or you know, someone with a different background in, in journalism at an architecture firm. Um, so I think that's also, I think we need to start reframing our minds again to what diversity means and then how that can permeate within the organization. I think when you have people from different backgrounds as well and different um, fields of study, it really adds to the conversation, it adds to the collaboration, it adds to the output as well. So I think millennials understand the importance of diversity and then they, they're starting to say, well, what can we do to push the envelope even more when it comes to that? And that's what they're really asking for from their organizations. Can, can we, so yeah. let's just say, let's just put this out there, right? Yeah. That, that in order to achieve diverse workforces, mm -hmm. we need to stop looking for talent in our backyard, mm -hmm. right? Yeah. We need to, and which isn't to say that all of us uh, should um, leave your dessert half eaten on the table, run back to your organization and say, we're abandoning the ship, the space, we're getting rid of everything, we're going to be a fully remote workforce or organization, right? So it's not about picking one or the other, but I do think that increasingly, in fact, we see increasingly that it isn't necessarily about posting a job description or, or putting up job posting and then adding New York, New York, or Boston, Massachusetts, or yeah. Chicago, Illinois, right, to that, so that you can at least start off with the belief that the, per the right fit for that role could come from someplace that you don't expect. And I think this is particularly important to this conversation, one, clearly because it has an implication for the way that we occupy and use space organizationally. It certainly has an implication for the way that we connect and interact and collaborate with one another and do our individual work, right, mm -hmm. and deliver on the things that are expected of us. Um, but it, it also has an impact um, on how we think about not just top talent, 
but the majority of our talent, right? If we think about you know, any sort of social science, scientific bell curve, um, if we were only talking about top talent, this would be a really short conversation. We need to be thinking about the majority of our talent, right? The, frankly, the middle talent. Mm -hmm. Um, because those are the, you know, the, the, again, those are the bulk, that's the bulk of the organization, and, it, and it's the, the last 20% that will more naturally turn over, looking for other opportunities, not delivering on performance expectations. Mm -hmm. You know, it's everybody else, right, who's doing what we want, when we want it from them that we need to focus on. Mm -hmm. Well, to touch on the mobility um, aspect, I find it interesting, my cousin, who I believe is 23, um, just a year out of college, just had his first job, and he's already on the market looking for another job. Okay, so that's just this, put the baseline there. Um, and so he's got an offer for a media buyer account manager job that was fully remote. And so he's like, should I take it? And it was 20% more, 30% more than what he's making. He's like, well, that's great. But he's like, Are you, how do you feel about being 100% remote? He's like, ask your manager about the mentoring program. You know, how often are you going to meet with him? Um, you know, what's he willing to invest in you, be it that you're 100% remote early in your career? And, um, and so he asked the questions and he felt comfortable about it. And his second question to me, once he decided to take the job, was like, well, you know, I'm also looking at doing some other side gigs. I'm like, oh my gosh, like, just focus on getting a job. But it's so interesting because I think younger millennials are focused on the gig economy and, and how many other jobs can they work on at the same time. And it's providing more income for them. It's providing more flexibility. Um, and I think flexibility is usually the top, if not top three item that millennials, um, and not just to focus on millennials in our conversation, so I don't want to get too much in the pigeonhole there, but I think a lot of people are asking for flexibility as one of the top reasons why they take a job. And when he took the job, he's like, I could work from California, I could work from you know, New York where his brother lives. So there's a lot of really important things around that and so kind of supporting his lifestyle mm -hmm. that made him uh, make that choice. So I find that interesting. Yeah, employees can really be choosy. Mm -hmm. um, so kind of on the flip side of the remote, the physical workplace, which is probably what we're, many of us are interested in, what is the role? A couple of ideas I just jotted down here of um, aspects of the space that can support onboarding. One is even just a tech genius bar, something that on your first day, if you're not able to get things set up, you can go and ask someone. There's someone stationed there. You don't have to find the IT guy. Um, brand messaging. Anything in the space that's kind of signaling the, the mission, vision, and values of your organization, it's supporting that inclusive design, and it's just kind of reminding you of why you're there, maybe who works there. You might see their photos on the wall. Um, and then visibility and access to management was the other thought I had. So glass-fronted offices, um, just the ability to be close to a manager for those kind of check-ins and career development. What other ideas do you have about the, the physical workplace and how the office can support onboarding? Well, I'll say that the access and awareness of others mm -hmm. right, is, a, is a huge thing. And, and that is sometimes visual, mm -hmm. right? Access and awareness of, of others. Um, but in, in many cases, it's also around just the ability to cross paths with people, any people, right? Any other people within the organization, because you don't know in advance where that next answer or opportunity or cup of coffee is, uh, is, is going to come from. So organizing our spaces, sure, that has an impact, right? The design of that built environment uh, has, has an impact. But it's also, as part of the onboarding, mm -hmm. explaining the purpose and the philosophy behind the environment, right? 
I'd be curious, right, how many of you, if you've been part of a redesign or relocation for the organizations that you work with, spent time and effort to put together some sort of welcome guide, something that helped with the change process associated with moving people you know, from one kind of space to another. My, my sense is that number is going to be fairly high. Mm -hmm. But the number then of people who, in that same organization, who took that guide and then gave it to the next new hire, the person who didn't go through that change process but started two months later after you all moved into that new mm -hmm. space, that doesn't happen, that tends not to happen. And I, I think we mm -hmm. need to question why that is. Our, our space has purpose. We all spend a lot of time and energy and money, right? Investing in it, trying to get it right. Um, everybody should know why. That's a, that's a really good point. And something close to me as someone who's gone through that change management process, it's like you invest so much time in it and then it, we really should be treating change management as an ongoing thing for every single person who comes into the door. It's like, here's how to operate the AV. Here's how to, like everything about, and here's why we designated this space. Um, but yeah, that's interesting. We have a space on the fifth floor of our office that is just community space. It's purely social. There's a cafe and there's some informal meeting areas. And I remember when we were designing it, there was this whole question of, well, those should really be like at the entrance and what, there's gonna be no conference rooms there. And there was this whole process of kind of educating people. But once they understood why, we wanted a central place where everyone could go and meet and like, the good coffee's up there, so that's where everyone's gonna come. We're dispersed across five floors. This is the best way to kind of gather everyone together. And then people were more on board with it, and now everybody loves it, so there you go. <laughs> well, tying into what you mentioned um, about the mission, more of a mission-driven culture, I think, I'm sure we've all been in offices that just plaster a logo on the wall, and like, yes, you know, we've done our job in terms of branding. It's like, okay. Um, I think the companies that, make, that are more intentional around um, expressing who you are as a company and what your mission is and what your values are in the space, I think it can be very powerful. I worked with one company that actually had their credo um, on their walls and within all of their programming, and they really meant it. And they actually expected you to know it by heart. It was like, oof. And it was kind of long. Um, but it was really something that they valued. And so they wanted to make sure that it was very upfront and, and personal as you walk through their space. And you know absolutely what company you're walk, walking through when you walk through that space. Because I know I've walked into companies and spaces where you could, you could be any company in any city, you know, maybe any country. It's, there's really nothing that's really holding and anchoring the space and the culture. So I think that's important in, in terms of onboarding. Again, it's getting the message out who we are um, as a company and having everyone kind of buy into it. And if, if you choose to stay, um, especially if it's a positive thing. And a lot of employees are asking for their companies to have some type of social impact. Mm -hmm. um, and it's not just about the bottom line. And they, they want to see a, a mix of both to say that, of course, like I want to get paid well, but then I also want to know that my company is doing something to better the environment or better some type of social impact. Um, to, I think that's something that... I've heard a lot from uh, especially younger employees, but particularly all employees. And then I guess the other thing I'd say, just to kind of piggyback on what you said, is that I think there's, I'm sure we've all heard, because there are a lot of us, I'm sure, in real estate or design industry, and we hear the space is called chance collision spaces, right? I know it's a term that a lot of us say all the time, but it really means something. It really means that someone that you don't normally work with, who maybe not be in your department, you have an opportunity to chance collide with them in these kind of open collaborative spaces that are meant for, especially for that. 
I think um, in the past, and I'm sure a lot of projects that we work on are transitioning spaces that were, people thought that, okay, it's a conference room, that's where you collaborate. Everywhere else mm -hmm. is where you work individually, and now it's like there's so much that happens in between uh, your desk and a conference room, and there's so much that should happen in between. And so we're creating spaces that really help promote that and allow people to work outside or allow people to work in a conference room or on a sofa, on an ottoman, and creating and helping clients create cultures where it's okay. Because I think a lot of times mm -hmm. you'll see uh, you know, more, more um, traditional organizations that say, you're only working if you're at your desk, right? Mm -hmm. But you could be working on a sofa, on a sofa, and it's just kind of rethinking of the way that you work and, and making sure that it's okay from mm -hmm. the bottom up and the top down and recreating that. And a lot of that is management modeling exactly. space use. So yes. you want to see, you know, the senior most people working on the Ottoman and then that kind of signals, okay, we have permission to do so. Exactly, exactly. Yeah. I would like, say yeah. there are three striking things about the space that TableXI built. TableXI has, with leaner budgets than Google, endeavored to be as innovative in our use of uh, real estate as, as some of the market leaders. Uh, the first thing is when you walk into the space, there is a piece of artwork that was designed and implemented by one member of the team then implemented by the whole group uh, that brings together a, a, a very artistic rendering in string interconnected with roofing nails mounted in sheetrock uh, of our whole logo. It's about eight feet wide and, and six feet tall. Um, and it's just immediately, it's not just paint or stencil or a printed sign. It's, it's, a, it's a depth to it. It's, it was an interdisciplinary project of the team coming together to actually render that artifact. And it is uh, one of the great mistakes I've made to have installed <laughs> it directly into the wall as opposed to on a substrate that could then be mounted on the wall because if and when we need to move, we've already moved the wall successfully once, but it, uh, it, it's sort of part of it and we'll have to, but in some ways like, okay, we move, We'll redo it, we'll recreate it, it will once yes. again be an adventure together. Uh, the second thing that's really striking is the tables. Now the business is called Table XI, but the table in Table XI is a reference to a database table, not a physical table. But over the years, we've managed to acquire some really interesting, different, unique tables. We were one of the first people to have a bowling alley table. Um, uh, many of our tables are made by a local artisan by the name of Strand Design, who does not believe in felling new lumber. They have a philosophical opposition towards cutting down trees, and everything they make is from reclaimed wood. Uh, so they're butcher block tables made from uh, reclaimed floorboards. So you can see the little pop holes in the, in the, um, in, in the, from where the nails would have, uh, finishing nails would have mounted them on the floor. Uh, and the, perhaps my favorite of all these strange tables is the dining table from my apartment that I lived in when I started the company. Um, and so we still have this like the original table and it just sits in one of our conference rooms and people don't know what it is until you sort of tell the story. But throughout the thing is, is this interconnectedness of, of, of cool tables. And then the final thing that is very striking in our space and you know, when we do the tour, we always leave it for last because it sort of works out that way. But it also is the thing where people go, whoa, is we, um, we found one of the, at the time, six buildings in Chicago that was willing to rent uh, 5,000 or 6,000 square feet and put in an oven. So we actually have a, two, a 400 square foot, like quasi-commercial grade kitchen in the space. Um, and for over 10 years, we've employed a full-time chef. 
um, who who's a member of the team and sort of helps with our branding and positioning. We do events for sales and marketing where we invite people into the space and do our own self-catering. But most importantly, we serve the staff lunch every day and it's a communal lunch. It's not, it's not, we don't operate at the scale of Google where there's a huge cafeteria you can choose your own adventure. Basically everybody eats the same meal together every day. Now, we accommodate gluten-free, vegan, vegetarian, pescatarian, lactose intolerant, peanut allergy, mushroom allergy, onion allergy, um, uh, everything you can possibly imagine. So it's like, a, it's, it, there is an element of choose your own adventure, but um, that, I am convinced that the 12, so if we look at the cost of the chef, probably $60,000 a year, plus about $5 per employee per meal, uh, we have about 40, we do 50 meals a day, so it's $250, $300 in food costs, plus amortizing that employee. It ends up, the whole program costs us maybe $150,000 a year. I am convinced that to just hire these people, we'd spend, be spending a half a million dollars. Mm -hmm. So it's, it's, it's like, people will take compensation in free lunch, and this very intimate free lunch yeah. in a way, and, and I think that it was a really great decision to do it ourselves. You can now hire FUDA or you can do it. There's all these people who are replicating that, yep. but the intimacy of doing it ourselves mm -hmm. and having this kitchen and whatnot, it's hard from a code perspective, I know. You should all work on that, but, um, <laughs> um, but uh, it, it, it really um, brings something uh, truly remarkable. Yeah, creates a family atmosphere, which is like, key for working together and collaborating further. Um, I'm just being cognizant of the time. I wanna talk a little bit about technology and its role. So I learned from my colleague about an app called Donut, which um, connects dispersed or virtual employees um, via these virtual coffees. So you have a dispersed workforce, they can meet and connect um, through this app. Um, Josh, you developed an onboarding app that is also built on the premise that connection is the linchpin of meaningful onboarding. So can you talk about the hypothesis behind that? I think that Sure. Yeah, so it's interesting because I discovered Donut when we were halfway to building a Donut competitor. Um, <laughs> so it's the classic case where you think you've got this really cool idea and then someone launches it before you've built it. Um, but our view was, uh, this is a, a little side project we've been working on called Everyone On Board. And that's, uh, the idea is that onboarding is a continuous process. Um, and people do it badly and then they don't do it at all. And our view is you should do it well and continue for the entire life cycle of someone's uh, employment. Um, so the little program that we've developed, uh, which is available for trials if anybody's interested, um, uh, but it's really sort of a, a science project around our thinking of this, um, is lunch, coffee, or a walk, 15, 30, 60 minute increments on company time with company money to build a, 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 a relationship with a new person. It's, it can be used for two companies merged. We need to do post-merger integration. It can be, you know, we have disparate offices or disparate practice groups who wanna bring people together. We have senior employees and junior employees and we want to give them some exposure to each other so that maybe a mentorship arrangement actually naturally develops. There could be a scenario where classic fault lines in an organization, the marketing team and IT fighting. Does that happen in your organization? Because every client we've ever had has that <laughs> that schism is like, can we remind people that they're real people, give them some, some real space, and it, best yet, give them coffee or give them lunch to sort of remind them they're both human. Because you're breaking bread, you just like, your, your, your deep brain is gonna, oh yeah, this is another human being. Not, not John from IT who says no to everything. 
Um, uh, and so uh, we've been experimenting with it and, um, and, 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 and building connections. And it's, it's a small investment, time and money. People are going to do it anyway, but it sort of makes it also kind of, um, it gives the explicit permission. Like it's the management leading on that as opposed to people having to come up and say, hey, you know, I want time to do this. Or like, why, you know, it's, you make it part of the, it's a program, it's, it's company sponsored, it's company directed. And it's, uh, it's been very interesting to watch it play out in real time. This is also the difference between a perk and an amenity, right? Mm -hmm. I mean, amenities, it's pretty low order kind of stuff, right? But a perk is really something that helps drive culture within the organization that allows people to connect with one another or to, to perform at their best uh, in, in a way that, that makes the most sense for, for them. That's one of the things I like about that. Yeah. And yeah. It's, it's driven by authenticity, which, you know, without that, it's kind of meaningless anyway, right? This whole idea of connection, people. And, I'm, and I was just going to add, you know, every company, to your point, the perks and the amenities can be and should be different. It should be catered to your, your people. And an example I always give is that I worked with a client where we uh, surveyed their people to see what amenities they wanted for a new build to suit that they were doing uh, this is in Pittsburgh. And the number one amenity that they asked for was actually kind of a quiet room or like a space where they can go with no technology allowed, where they can decompress for 15 or 30 minutes and then go back to work. And I found that to be really eye-opening because you always think that they're going to ask for free food, right, or ask for certain types of amenities, a fitness room. Those things were on there, but the number one was that we work so hard, we actually want a space at work to decompress. So I just found that to be really interesting. So again, if you ask your your people, they'll tell you. Um, I think that's that's the smart way to do it. Um, and then I, I guess to tie back to onboarding <laughs> is, um, you know, I think the technology conversation is, I always say, get the low tech right, meaning your computer is there ready to go on your first day. Can you, I, mean, I don't know if anyone in this room has experienced your computer, like waiting for it to get there, and you're like, what do I do for eight hours? <laughs> you know, it's like, I don't have, I have a job, but I don't have anything to do. So. Things like that, just having technology work, um, teaching how to use, how to book a conference room, um, just low-tech things where, where you where you're sit, mm -hmm. so that you just make that first day just really easy and seamless. So that's the easy part. One of the things that's unique about onboarding and business problems is most people in your organization will only ever experience onboarding once. And so if you're making huge investments in onboarding, which for a while my company was, Nobody knows about it because they onboard only once. So they don't get to see the before and after. Only you know it and only you can sort of measure and see it play out. But it's, it's one of those things where it's actually quite unsatisfying because nobody can see and yeah. celebrate the successes the organization is having until you look at it as a sort of systematic problem. But again, things like just being able to walk in and, and, and get, get to work is, is huge. And it's, it's sort of thankless work in some ways, although extremely impactful. Um, mm -hmm. But, but this is where technology can increasingly play a role in greater awareness of how connected people are to the organization. Right? Mm -hmm. Because it may be that you don't have the mechanism to continually board people right, on, a, on a regular basis. Um, but what you can do is look at things like, say, uh, presence, right? or how frequently somebody is showing up to the office. And relative to peers or relative to the previous three months, if there's no change in job responsibility, expectation, and adjusted for, I don't know, seasonality, all of a sudden this person is showing up half as often as they used to be, there may be something going on. Again, 
if they haven't been asked to do something different or in a different way or on a different team, there also are increasingly simple ways to pulse survey people, to get a sense of how a department or a team or even an individual is feeling about their engagement with the organization, their sense of confidence with the leadership team, or even just their overall sort of satisfaction and happiness with the work environment. And it doesn't, again, it doesn't necessarily mean that it's time to then haul that person down to the principal's office, mm -hmm. but it does, that information, that data does allow you then to, in a more targeted or deliberate fashion, apply your understanding through technology for the kinds of programs or the kinds of initiatives or efforts that you can make to keep people, to keep someone connected mm -hmm. before they've walked into your office and they've said, oh, by the way, uh, I'm leaving and I've been thinking about that for some time and no, there's nothing else you can do now, right, to keep me because I've, right. you know, it's, that, that, was, that opportunity was three months ago. Right? Yep. Wouldn't you have rather known? Absolutely, the data capture is critical. Um, and, and bringing it back to space before I transition out of space, we just issued, um, I don't know, probably most people in this room know about the Leesman survey, but it's a workplace satisfaction survey. And it's not about the policies or the culture, it's strictly about the space. And certainly people aren't gonna leave a company because they're cold or it's loud, but those things do play a role. And when you see you know, areas where your office is underperforming, like people are really frustrated with acoustics or they really, really love this social space, it can help you assess where you need to maybe tweak the workplace to you know, at least have a positive impact on, on satisfaction and effectiveness versus you know, inhibiting it. While we're still on space, just yes. one quick shout out. <laughs> I wanna, um, I heard too much reference for my own comfort to this idea of the value of serendipitous, serendipitous encounters in the workplace. <laughs> I, think, I think it's complete hooey when you balance it across against the cost of interruptions especially for people who are doing deep work. And I feel like this entire collective industry has skewed way too far towards like extroverts yelling at each other in an office and forgetting that a lot of the work actually gets done like deeply engaged and the cost of, of an interruption is very high. So just as, as you're going yep. back and thinking about the sort of the pendulum, I think is once again swinging back towards quieter, um, more individual space from like the open office circus and like trying to, I just, um, we have an open office and now we're looking at maybe closing it off a little bit more again. And mm -hmm. I'm just one use case, but I, I definitely tell you that no, if, if reduction that. of interruptions would be the top of the list of my team of what they would like to be different about the way that the space sort of interacts with the culture. That's, so. that's the number one thing that we yeah, see too. One. And we try to provide choice, of course, so it's not just open or closed, but that both for our own organization when we surveyed them and for clients, it's like noise and distraction. Always number one, it's the most universal problem. Yeah, so it's like the meditation room, of course, <laughs> okay, you know, yeah. that's like, I can finally get somewhere quiet, you know. Right. Uh, and and so, here's, so here's what you can do, right? It, you, can, uh, you can go back and whether you do this for your own organization or anyone that you work with. Mm -hmm. uh, starting next week, you can quantify that, ask people, mm -hmm or measure in some other way, right? Gather this data in some other way. You can find out how frequently these interruptions occur and with what intensity they disrupt productive activity. It's, people don't measure, we don't measure productivity unless mm -hmm. you're a call center and you're looking at or factory. time to completion, yeah. right? factory <laughs> worker, or maybe if you're a law firm and you're focused on sort of productivity, productivity equals billable hour. But assuming that you're not one of those categories, 
focus on the things that get in the way of people being productive, right? Mm -hmm. The pop-ins, the distractions by noise, the looking for a conference room, mm -hmm. the waiting for a meeting to start because people are late, the waiting for technology to kick in to start that meeting with people who may not be in that room. All of those things have a frequency and an intensity. Mm -hmm. Quantify that and then make change to start, that starts to focus on diminishing those things from occurring. Again, either in how often they occur or how much time you lose as a result of those occurrences. And you will have returned time back to people that, well, we, we presume that they'll put back for the good of the organization yeah. when really right now they might be focused on their survivor pool, football or something. Yeah. Yeah. Right. Yeah. All right, I think we are gonna wrap it up in short order right. here. Do some questions. Sorry, we don't want to disturb a great conversation, but we do want to open up if anybody has a question they would like to ask. And while we wait for that, we'll turn it back to the panel. Sure. So we talked a lot about space and place, but what else should companies be focused on in order to improve the experience of work in general? Good one. <laughs> That's a great question. So I think what we're talking really more about done. policies here. <laughs> Less about the space, more about, you know, cultural interventions or... Like I, I, one thing that we do as part of um, our career planning, and I think this goes back to the idea of creating uh, a, a bi-directional social contract that's based on transparency and trust with employees. Uh, this is more and more and more important in a more transactional uh, workplace because people will leave for small, not large um, uh, violations of this sort of thing. Um, we do this, this program we call the sticky note game. Every six months, a, uh, a subject matter expert, the person's career uh, mentor, and an individual sit down. And it was a very lightweight facilitation to basically map out career professional goals. We might be project related, it might be learning related, it might be I'm gonna lose 10 pounds, it might be all sorts of things. Uh, everybody writes down ideas, we then cluster them, put them together, and every six months you have this sort of lightweight, up-to-date career plan, set of goals. It's, 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 it's not a, so much about accountability in a hard measurement perspective, but it's sort of like showing everybody what's happening and surfacing issues and opportunities for, hey, we never knew John was interested in that, let's make sure he gets on a project to do that. So I think that's one really, uh, constant, bi-directional, open dialogue with your people. Yeah, you know, I always, um, I always say that companies, at least the ones that I've worked for and, and those that I've heard of that allow for people to move around within the company. So you're not necessarily having to leave, but if you want a new role or you want a new experience, you can get that within the same umbrella of the company. And, and that really helps to retain talent. Um, and it, it also encourages them to get new experiences that, in, 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 in part, help your company um, as well because, you know, they're adding their experiences into the, the big pool. So that's something that uh, I've seen companies do really well. And again, so that even though you may lose them in a department, you're not losing the talent altogether. And you're not having to spend the money to onboard a new person. The whole process of finding, hiring, and onboarding, um, you minimize the cost of that if you let people kind of move around within your organization. Absolutely. Uh, and I, I think you've heard, you know, you've heard from each of us that, uh, that the question was about sort of other than space and yeah. place, that space and place are not going to solve the problem. 
Right. right. So there, I suppose that's a, that's a way of saying uh, that not only are there other avenues that you have to walk down in order to you know, promote engagement and keep people connected, um, you, you have to do those things, right? They exist and you have to do them because just redesigning your office, just making it uh, you know, a place uh, uh, you know, that, that sort of fancy and full of natural light won't do it by itself. Mm -hmm. The culture leads. Yes. <laughs> so you talked a bit about this earlier, Adam, but who owns onboarding? Um, you talked a bit about it dispersing, but are there other key players that we need to take into account when we're talking about onboarding? In the best companies, yes. onboarding is owned by the CEO. <laughs> yeah. Um, like, obviously, in a larger organization, the CEO is going to task an HR team or whatever, but if this isn't... If this isn't a topic or a, a thing that seems valuable enough to that level, then you're missing out on opportunities. It's not just an HR thing. It's super yeah, yeah. deep and, and it's a manifestation both of the organization's value systems, but also just the, you know, the level of engagement of whoever's running it on, on making it um, a great place to be and empowering people fully. Well, there's so many interdependencies, right? It's the HR side, which is an obvious one, but it's the legal side, it's operations, it's finance, um, you know, even communications, you know, all those different kind of stakeholders in that process is what makes onboarding successful. And then especially the CEO and like at the top as well, but um, many stakeholders. Yeah, I mean, even just saying hi to someone in the pantry or in the kitchen. I mean, we all forget, I've been at my organization for nine years and you just forget, you take for granted that you know everyone or you know most people, um, but even just saying hi to someone is, it can be very transformative mm -hmm. for their experience. And I worked uh, very recently with a nonprofit that shared uh, this, what I think is a great idea related to ownership of the onboarding process uh, that I'll share with you, which is that the one stakeholder that's often, a, one, a stakeholder that's often left out of the onboarding process is the most recent person who was onboarded. Mm. And they do that as a matter of regular course, which means that to them, they are constantly learning from and evolving the approach that they take, retaining all of the things that worked well, and continually sort of stripping out, even if they're small things, the things that did not work very well. And they're actually using that person now as almost in a very direct kind of peer-to-peer -peer way mm -hmm. with the newest hire. So you can look someone, that new hire, can look the person who came immediately before them in the eye as almost as a sort of way to say, like, is this really working? Is this really how, how things go? Uh, am I really going to be happy here? Uh, you know, should I trust what I'm being told? Right, all these sorts of things. And so those natural questions that exist when you first join an organization and you feel like you're just sort of, uh, uh, you know, looking at, at, at uh, you know, sunshine and, and roses, um, you know, really do have the, you know, the weight of, of truth and, um, and, and, and have been tested. Uh, and that goes a long way, goes a long way for them. And I, I hope that as I share that more, that it ends up going a long way for other organizations as well. Okay, great. Thanks, everyone. Um, let's give our panel a great uh, round of applause. Great job. Thanks. Very informative.